Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for Debut Fiction and the Holocaust When Fiction Steps In for History with Martha Ann Toll. I also want to thank our co-hosts for today's event, Congregation Ortzion in Phoenix. Just to tell you a little bit about our guest speaker today, Martha Ann Toll's debut novel, Three Muses, was shortlisted for the Gotham Book Prize and won the Petrature Prize for Finely Crafted Fiction. Toll writes writes fiction, essays, and book reviews and reads anything that's not nailed down. She brings a long career in social justice work to her work, covering authors of color and women writers as a critic and author interviewer at NPR Books, The Washington Post, Point Magazine, The Millions, and elsewhere. Toll serves on the board of directors of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. Her second novel, Duet for One, will be published in early 2025. Hi, Martha. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you, Alex, so much. I'm delighted to be here. Big thank you to Alex Kramer, who produced this show, and Rabbi Shmuley, who I'm sorry is not well today, but I want to thank all of you for making me feel welcome. And it's really a great honor and privilege to be able to speak to you folks at Valley Beit Midrash. Um, The title of my talk is Debut Fiction and the Holocaust, When Fiction Steps in for History. I'm going to give you a little outline of what I plan to do today, and then um, we'll start in with the slides. The question for our talk today is what makes a historical novel? My novel has a lot to do with the Holocaust, and that how we write the Holocaust is something that we could spend a lifetime discussing. Many others have done this or tried to do it. Um, So I'm going to share a little bit of some of the totemic figures in the field and some of what my thinking was when I approached Three Muses. Ironically, when I did, um, when I was writing Three Muses, I had to make decisions about what would make the novel feel more real and more centered in history. And part of that was getting rid of some of the real historical facts. It's just ironic, but that's how it goes. Writing is my currency. And so in talking about the um, Holocaust, I want to touch on language and naming and how that um, affects my book, but also how it ties into our Jewish tradition. In between, I'm going to do two short readings from Three Muses, and then hopefully you'll have questions and we can have a discussion. To get us oriented, I wanted to read the publisher's description of Three Muses, and it will give you a brief sense, I hope, of what the novel is about. In post-World War II New York, John Curtin suffers lasting damage from having been forced to sing for the concentration camp commandant who murdered his family. John trains to be a psychiatrist after he makes it to America, struggling to wrest his life from his terror of music and of the past. Katya Simonova climbs the arduous path to prima ballerina of the New York State Ballet, becoming enmeshed in an abusive relationship with her choreographer, who makes Katya a star, but also controls her life. When John receives a ticket to attend a ballet featuring Katya Simonova, 
a spell is cast. One of the ironies of my book process is that I didn't realize I had written a historical novel until I got published. During the 10 years that I was writing my book, I didn't really think about what genre I was writing. I think this is true for a lot of writers because our books cross genres, and I'm sure it's true for a lot of readers who don't necessarily stick to one genre in what they read. It's about the reader's pleasure in a book and not about the genre. But I understand The Three Muses is a historical novel. It takes place at a definite point in time, mostly in 1963, with backstory going back to the 1940s. It deals with historical events, the Holocaust, America before and after President Kennedy was assassinated, a ballerina whose ascendancy is particularly mid-20th century, enmeshed with a choreographer whose behavior is also mid-century. I thought I would start with the pillars of this field, um, Holocaust writers, um, and talk about briefly about three authors from three different countries who were survivors and chose fiction as their medium. And I find that really interesting. Um, it's true that they wrote essays, but I think it's really interesting that the primary expression of the horrors of their experience were fiction. Primo Levi was Italian. He grew up in an assimilated family and um, he was born in 1919. He went to, he was trained as a chemist and he was working as a chemist and he was fighting with the Italian partisans and arrested, I think by Mussolini troops. And ironically, he saved his life by saying that he was Jewish, which caused him to be deported to Auschwitz. He survived Auschwitz by making it clear that he had science background and worked as a chemist, and that actually saved his life. He said this about his own writing career. When he, when he returned from the war, he, he worked his entire life as a chemist, but he was writing that whole time. When he what, and This is what he said. After Auschwitz, I had an absolute need to write, not only as a moral duty, but as a psychological need. The second writer, um, the book is a little bit off the page here, is Imre Kertesz. This is his book, Fateless, which is, I think, his most autobiographical novel. Um, Imre Kertesz also, he was Hungarian. He also grew up in a very... Um, sort of secular, non-observant family. And he was deported late in the war. Hungarian deportations were among the latest. Um, and he was 14 at the time he arrived at Auschwitz. And he said that he was 16 and that he had been a worker in Budapest. And again, that saved his life because he was sent to a work contingent um, rather than being murdered. He remained relatively obscure. He settled in Germany and um, won the Nobel Prize in 2002, which I think he found shocking. In his words, he grew up in a secular family, but his death camp internment obliged him to be Jewish. His book, Fateless, is one of the most stark, um, plain, simple language, dispassionate view of what happened to him during the Holocaust. And for that, it is chilling and powerful. 
The third writer here is Arnold Lustig, who was Czech, and he was deported as a child. He was born in 1926, and he escaped from a train that he was in traveling from Auschwitz to Dachau and spent um, the war in the woods fending for himself um, that he ultimately ended up in Prague, where he fought with the partisans. And he did spend 30 years in Washington, D.C., where I live, teaching at the American University here. What characterizes all three of these fiction writers is a spareness of language that is really unadorned and a continuing literary output in fiction that makes clear you can't get over an experience like this and that it can be retold in any number of ways. There are infinite challenges in writing the Holocaust. I have a lot of questions about my own ability to write this story. Did I have the right to write it? Is it possible to do it justice? What does respect mean for both the victims and the survivors? How can we honor those who were lost and whose lives were permanently changed by this tragedy? I think we all know that there are many millions of holocausts. People have extraordinary, each person who was involved with it had extraordinary story. My feeling was all the statistics in the world cannot do the same justice to the Holocaust as one person's story. So that's what I did. I focused on John's story. This came from a lifetime of research. I grew up in a non-observant Jewish family in suburban Philadelphia. And in many ways, the Holocaust was my first introduction to Judaism. I always knew about it. And while I didn't receive a Jew, much of a Jewish education, I did um, grow up in a very, very warm extended Jewish family that was aware of their Judaism. My mother had a cousin from Mainz, Germany, who escaped Germany with their grandmother in 1938, but the rest of the family was murdered at Auschwitz. And this cousin, Ellen Boucher, whose papers are in the Holocaust Museum, for anybody who wants to look them up, wrote a beautiful memoir about her upbringing in Mainz, her childhood, that she wanted to share with her children and grandchildren. And I was lucky enough to be able to read it. The thing that struck me was um, what many people say is how ordinary her life was um, until the Nazis rose to power. So as I said, I chose one person like to tell this story. Could we I, actually hold on? We're going to wait one sec. Um, my protagonist is was named Janko Stein in Germany. And when he is on the boat to America, he changes his name to John Curtin because he figures a curtain will block out the horrible experience of his murdered family. But he doesn't even spell curtain right. Most of my book does not take place in a concentration camp. There are very few scenes there. I'm gonna read just for atmospherics the scene in which we see him deported with his mother and brother. The year is 1944. Muti jumped off the train holding little Max. She landed a meter away. 
her skin showing through the elbows of her coat, a remaining button hanging by a thread. In place of air, a smoky stench. In place of sound, shouting soldiers. The ground was scuffed with ice. Muti, Max, and Yanko clustered with the women and children. Men were ordered into single file next to them. Even Herr Professor Goldstein, who taught at gymnasium, and Herr Dr. Kornblum, who used to grind eyeglasses. Yanko tilted toward Max and tried his regular tricks. He stuck out his tongue and crossed his eyes. Max didn't giggle. He ogled Yanko through tears. An SS man pushed through the women and children and thrust his thumbs at Yanko. Into the men's line. He's 10, Muti said. Yanko opened his mouth to correct her. Actually, he was 11, but Muti didn't notice. She was glaring at the SS man. He's only 10. The soldier jabbed the butt of his rifle in the small of Yanko's back and began elbowing him away. Muti raised her voice. He can sing. Sorry, I skipped a page. Um, Yanko struggled to summon tunes from Papa's gramophone. It was forever ago, before the Axion. That was when the police gathered the Jewish people who hadn't been shot or jumped out of windows yet. You're the man of the family now, Muti had said, handing Yanko a valise with clothes and jewelry and photographs. It was heavy, but Yanko did his best to drag along to drag it along. Muti had to carry Max. Muti and Max and Yanko were squeezed into the back of a truck and taken to a nearby town. They lived in a school with their neighbors and a lot of other people too, crushed together with straw mats for beds and not much food and no toilets to speak of either. Muti leaned over, Max squirming in her arms and hummed in Yanko's ear, get away from her from him, sorry. but Yanko had heard something. Muti had unloosed a song. Everyone knew the lantern by the barracks where Lily Marlena's soldier had kissed her. The SS man put down his rifle and dropped his shoulders. Women around Muti and Max shifted their gaze from the front of the line to Yanko. Men stopped muttering and shuffling and faced the singing the briefest moment, it was less lonely. The SS man poked Yanko's shoulder. Come. Yanko looked at Muti. She pressed her lips to his forehead, warm against his skin. Her eyes were closed. The SS man showed Yanko through the line of women and children. Yanko tried not to stumble as he was prodded along the frozen ground. Once he twisted around. He could see Muti, but he couldn't get her attention. She was staring in front of her, advancing in her line, clutching Max to her bosom. I framed the story and the plot of my book within three muses. These muses do come from Greek tradition, but it is a Greek tradition that we don't know too much about. And the three muses of this tradition are song, discipline, and memory. Discipline, interestingly enough, carries the meaning in Greek of preparation for prayer, which I found very interesting and appropriate for my book. Song is loosely associated with John Yanko when he was a boy. Music is the means to his salvation, but it is also the murder of his family. 
he falls in love with a ballerina who can only do her work with music. Discipline is associated with Katya Simonova, who is called Catherine Silman as a child when she grew up in Queens. And memory is the most powerful of the muses in my book, and I believe of all the muses. Both of these characters in my book are memory keepers. Yanko John is the memory keeper for his extended family. He is the only survivor. And Katya Simonova trains and is enmeshed in a very complicated and abusive relationship with her choreographer. And she is his memory keeper. She helps him make his ballets and he doesn't record them. So this idea of being a memory keeper for somebody else I found really interesting. Memory is also the wellspring for many, many writers, and it's the wellspring for most of us. We humans have memory, which is marks us as somewhat unusual from the rest of the animal kingdom. And our memories are very, very present for many of us. I also thought about the role of memory for the Jewish people. We are an ancient religion who have preserved a lot of our traditions and ritual through collective memory. And I think that is also an important through line in this book. May we have the next slide, please? Now I'm going to spend a minute talking about, we've, I've talked about the framing of my book, and now I'm going to spend a minute talking about what I had to throw out that was real history because I couldn't get it to work. Here's a picture of Bellevue Hospital in 1927. Bellevue is on the east side of New York. It's a renowned psychiatric hospital. John, when he comes to New York, trains as a psychiatrist. And initially, I knew that this is where he would do his training. He's there in the mid-50s, and I went down a rabbit hole to try to figure out what the interior of Bellevue Hospital might have looked like in the 1950s. It didn't take me long to realize that I was never going to be able to get what I needed. And I didn't even know if it was worth my time. So rather than keeping Bellevue and misdescribing it, I renamed the hospital as fiction writers sometimes do, and I called it Beaumont. Similarly, there were other New York names that I got rid of. I knew that Lincoln Center had been constructed around this time, but the dates did not work. Lincoln Center is where the New York City Ballet performs. Instead of using those names, I placed Katya in the New York State Ballet, and I renamed the theater Peter Stuyvesant because I just thought somebody's going to be upset that I wasn't accurate, and you don't want your reader to be distracted by mistakes that you're making. I put a lot of thought into dialogue and expressions. Here are three phrases that we use in common parlance every day that are only 20 years old to my ear. One is the expression, no worries. We used to say to each other, don't worry about it. Now we say no worries. Another is the bottom line. The bottom line is such and such, which was borrowed from business speak. And I'd say in the last 20 to 30 years. Another expression is at the end of the day, such and such. This is not, these are not interesting expressions, but when writing dialogue in a historical novel, you have to have in your ears the, the language of the time and in America, our vernacular changes extremely quickly. So I thought a lot about that when I was writing dialogue for the 1950s. 
Katya Simonova, as we've noted, is a professional ballerina. I spent um, probably two years centering the famous ballet Swan Lake at the center of my novel. I watched it a lot. I watched a lot of videos. I read a lot of stuff about it. And then one day I woke up and thought, I'm not going to learn enough about Swan Lake and some ballerina is going to be reading my book and they're going to be horrified that I missed something, whatever. But a bigger consideration was Swan Lake really had nothing to do with my book. And I'm a writer who feels that every word and every sentence and every ballet should be in service to the story. So I ended up writing my own ballets. Next slide, please. How did I put dance on the page? Um, writing my own ballet choreography was necessary. I found ballet is the heart of Katya's life and the key to the story. I figured out a way to choreograph from scratch by spending time with Katya in my imagination in the rehearsal studio and summoning new pieces over which the two of us could take ownership. We had to break the pieces down into their component parts. She spent years of preparation in class, endless work in the rehearsal room, the costumes, the lights, the music, and the fraught relationship with her choreographer, and the relationship between dancer and audience, which every dancer will talk about. When I finally realized I could do this, it came with more artistic freedom and obvious challenges. To choreograph my own ballets, I had to choose the music and costumes and the sense of the ballet and titles especially. I realized that the titles could be an aid to advancing the plot and signaling to the reader where the reader was in the story. I could tie the ballets to the emotions of Katya dancing them and to John of watching her. Three specific titles are Space Race, which was meant to orient and ground the reader in the fact that this was taking place around the time of Sputnik. Another was called Veiled Road, which was meant to signal that neither Katya nor John knew quite where they were going. And one is called Charged Particles, which is a nod toward the fact that they were living in the new atomic age. I'm going to briefly read the first time we see Katya go on stage. It's at the beginning of the book, and she is actually dancing in a ballet called Three Muses. John is in the audience, and she senses it, but she doesn't know it. Lars, playing the old fawn, stood with Katya, readying their entrance. Adjusting his horns, he whispered ballet's favorite good luck term, Mared, Muse of Discipline. Thanks, Lars. You too. Kati made a last adjustment to the ribbon on her right point shoe and felt the house feverish with anticipation. Act one began. Katya leapt on stage, parting the dancers as if her luminous heat would grill them alive. To dance was to live, to till motion, to impart the joy that welled up every time she took to the stage, her body the vehicle for her art. The lights were blinding. As the music intensified, she skimmed the energy from the audience to breach another dimension. Transcending reason, she danced through raw emotion 
and spun toward a new center. She had an eerie sense that someone out there had understood her, that she had spoken directly and been heard, that her endless labors had been worth it, the blisters, the pain, the exhaustion, the interminable practice to dance the music discipline, to feel what she felt. I wanna spend some time about naming, which I think is very, very important in the Jewish tradition and also took on its own meaning in Three Muses. I mentioned that Janko Stein was my main character's name when he lived in Germany. And when he comes to this country, all he can think about is forgetting everything. But of course, he can't forget everything because nobody can. The word curtain, which is misspelt, is a signal that of what he wanted, but he, what he was unable to overcome as he comes to this country. And during the course of his psychiatric training, he has to come to terms and at least recognize some of the horrors that he's experienced. Catherine Silman has a different problem. She grew up in Queens. Her mother was killed in a car accident and her aunt and her father decide as an only child that she would benefit by having ballet lessons because it would put structure in her life. And she really takes to it. She becomes very good at it and she falls under the spell of her choreographer who at age 17, as she's about to enter into the professional company, renames her Katya Simonova. This was a common practice with both American and British ballerinas during the 1950s and 60s. Katya Simonova is a big Russian name and part of Katya's struggle is to grow into it. Is she an imposter? Does she deserve this name? What happens if she screws up? So they each have different names and it's a parallel, but it's also not a parallel. I thought a lot about naming practices in the Jewish population because names are also a very important part of our tradition. In Genesis 2, right at the beginning, God gives Adam the job of naming everything. And I think it suggests um, that human beings were supposed to have authority over animals. We might disagree with that um, interpretation. We certainly might disagree with that today. But Adam does have that direction from God. We are a diasporic people, and many of us don't even know what our names were. My family um, fits into that description. My last name, Toll, has nothing to do with the ancestral name in, the, in Ukraine. So the issue with name changes as we are dispersed around the globe is a loss of ancestry and a loss of our own memories and what the meanings of our names are. When I talk about this, I often talk about the African-American population in the United States who suffers from the same issues. Many African-Americans are named after their enslavers and have no means to trace what their names actually were when, it, when they lived, their ancestors lived in Africa. I think this whole breach of your own history is connected with um, epigenetic trauma. I think it is dis, um, deracinating 
because we can't trace our history back the way other populations can. Finally, in terms of naming, Ashkenazi Jews choose to name after dead relatives, and many of us hold these names, and then we have to decide what it means to us, what it means to carry this person in our own name. I believe that the Sephardim do it um, after living relatives, but if you think about that, naming somebody after a person who has lived is also both a burden and an honor. And it's just something to think about and something to discuss. I think, hang on, I think ready. Yes, next slide, please. I mentioned at the beginning that obviously language is a writer's currency. And so I think a lot about language and language is tied with naming and loss of language is also tied not only with being a diasporic people, but trauma. Um, the um, Jewish people, as they have encircled the globe, have often lost previous languages like Yiddish or Ladino, Aramaic, um, in service of what the language of the place that they're living in is. Um, I want to talk about two writers who look at this with extreme thoughtfulness um, in terms of their own trauma. First, I'm quoting Arnos Lustig, who is one of the three writers that we looked at earlier in the talk. Loss of language means silence, and silence can mean different things. It can be solitude, which is a good thing, or it can be the silence of loss. Here's Arnost Lustig on silence in a story called Art from Ashes. I felt the snow, the ashes, and the silence around me. I felt the urge to go outside for which the guard would immediately shoot me before I got to the barbed wire. I wanted to touch with my lips a sliver of ash or snowflake. Alex, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, no problem. Um, so that, that introduces us to this concept of um, silence. I thought it would be interesting to discuss the Israeli writer Aron Appelfeld, who um, has a searing personal story, which we're going to get into in a minute. The story of a life is his memoir, which is one of the most important books that I feel like I've ever read. Apparently, I think there may he may have written two books by this title. Um, the one that I'm speaking about is he wrote closer to the end of his life. Appelfeld turned out to be mostly a fiction writer, and his fiction is very strange and very upsetting, eerie and disturbing. Appelfeld was born in 1932. He had an idyllic childhood. He was born in Chernowitz, which was then Romania, and it's now Ukraine. Appelfeld wrote of the quiet or silence of his childhood, which he called the he called it quiet, but he didn't see it as silence. Dinners to welcome the Sabbath were a festive meal. Quiet like a prayer. We are about to receive God. On Uncle Felix's estate, the quiet was deep but not absolute. Life descended into hell with the Nazis' arrival. This is Appelfeld writing. My mother was murdered at the beginning of the war. I didn't see her die. 
but I did hear her one and only scream. His family was deported and he and his father forced on a march to a labor camp in Ukraine. By age 10, he was living by his wits in the woods. Because he had blonde hair, he was taken in by a number of prostitutes who basically act, let him live with them as if he were their child. He was completely on his own and ended up through very circuitous means arriving in Palestine in 1946. This is Oppelfeld speaking in the story of a life about what had happened to his language. He is speaking of the words in his diary. My diary was a mosaic of words in German, Yiddish, Hebrew, and even Ruthenian. I say words and not sentences because in 1946, I was not able to connect words into sentences. And the words were the suppressed cries of a 14 year old youth who had lost all the languages he had spoken and was now left without language. His diary was a hiding place where he could pile up the remnants of his mother tongue and the words that he had just acquired. A pile of stuff is not a figure of speech. It described my soul. I don't think it's a coincidence that Oppelfeld wrote in the language that he learned in his early 20s, which was Hebrew. Suleiman Adonia has a similar story. Um, I think, um, Alex, let's, let's turn off the slides and if you would kindly drop into the chat, please. A, um, I wrote an essay um, about comparing these two writers that if you want to look at it, you'll get more detail. So. Um, Alex is going to, or Eddie, I guess, is going to drop it into the chat. Thank you. Suleiman Adonia was born in 1974. He was half Ethiopian, half Eritrean. His father was murdered in the Civil War. And he and his mother and brother made it to a Sudanese refugee camp, um, which was a long period of his childhood. His he moved to Saudi Arabia with his mother and learned Arabic and ultimately went with his brother to London as a stateless citizen, a stateless person with no English. He was in his late teens and he learned to speak English and he writes in English. He now lives in Brussels and works with refugees in Brussels um, as a writing teacher and a writer himself. He has learned Dutch, but he writes in English. And he wrote a fast, so first of all, Silence is My Mother Tongue is a fantastic book, also incredibly disturbing. But he's resonating with this idea of deep trauma causing you to lose your language, your language of origin. Tigrino was his first language. He lost it when his mother left the refugee camp to work as a domestic servant for a Saudi Arabian princess. Silence is my mother tongue was written in English, which Adonia finds soothing. In his words, without his mother's physical presence nurturing the words, they died in me, and silence became my language. And I think that's an extraordinary um, similarity between the traumatic experience of Appelfeld and Adonia. I'm going to wrap up in a little while. Um, and I just want to go over a little bit about what we talked about. Of course, I think that accuracy matters. 
in a historical novel, but you might actually make your writing more accurate by jettisoning history and changing up names and institutions. Everything I feel in a novel should be in service of plot or, as I say, um, in service of the story. The Holocaust is too big a story for any of us to grasp. It certainly is for me. Sometimes silence is the only way to process trauma, which we've just discussed with both Applefeld and Suleiman Adonia. But we've been lucky that there have been writers throughout history who have found a means to share their stories with us. Primo Levi, Arnos Lustig, Imre Kertesz, and another French writer that I think is probably my favorite book of all time, Andre Schwartz-Bart, called The Last of the Just, all rendered their experiences in fiction as a means to put some kind of a framework around their experience. Again, I think this is why people say that fiction tells the truth. It's not necessarily real, but sometimes it's more real because of the emotional truth that it holds. Before we open up to questions, um, a couple of things that I want to share with you. Um, as Alex mentioned, my next book called Duet for One continues some of these ideas about grief and music. It's coming out in May 2025. I love coming to book groups. So if any of you want to get in touch, my website is the same as my name, Martha Antol, and please don't be shy about getting in touch. And last of all, I really want to thank Alex and Eddie and Rabbi Shmuley and Beit Midrash and all of you for listening and coming today. And I would be delighted to answer any of your questions. Thank you so much, Martha. It was a pleasure to have you here. And yes, if anyone would like to ask a question or make a comment, please feel free to raise your hands and then we can call on people. Feel free to unmute or you can also use the chat. Hi, Judy. Hi, Martha. I was wondering... What, uh, what made you decide to write in the third person? I know you have to decide those kind of things as an author. And the other thing is I wanted to remark that I agree with you that um, it is impossible to put one's arms around something as huge as the Holocaust without basically looking through a keyhole. Otherwise, Anne Frank's diary would not be as powerful as it is. So, yeah. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you. Those are great questions and comments. Um, the answer is I wasn't sure. And I wrote a large part of Yanko's story in the first person initially. Um, and then I decided not to do it that way for a couple of reasons. So when you're writing in the first person, you are confined to the moment in time that that person is experiencing. So it's hard for you to... Um, get into a character's brain and have them processing things that might have happened a while ago. Um, that is a very much a craft and an artistic choice for any writer. But also there really are two protagonists in this book. And I ultimately decided that the third person would work better because there were two of them. Um, and to your point about um, um, Anne Frank's diary, which is so true, um, I think it's fascinating, you know, that that became a world bestseller. I mean, obviously, she's saying something that's universal. Um, I'm just reading a book by Alex Zapruder, um, who gathered, 
I'm I'm so sorry I'm terrible on names, but it's it'll be very obvious if you look her up. It's Z-A-P-R-U-D-E-R. Um, if anybody remembers the Kennedy conspiracy trials, it was her grandfather who shot the Zapruder film, which is she also has a book about that. But her first book was uncovering other diaries from other young people who kept a diary. Not all of them survived the Holocaust. Some of them did and some of them didn't. I mean, they're unbearable in their sadness. Um, although, like Anne Frank, many of them are quite joyous. It's it's unbearable in what, in what you know happened to these people. But if you're interested in that, I would check out her book. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the title. Thank you. Um, I'll read a question that came in the chat. Are your protagonists fictional characters with fictional names? Yes. <laughs> Yes. I was actually uh, just curious if you have a background in ballet or dance. Um, it seems like uh, it would be quite a lot of, or quite a big undertaking to have to kind of choreograph um, a ballet. Yes. So, oh, thanks, Carol. Thank you, Carol. Carol put in the chat, um, the name of Alex Zapruder's book is called Salvaged Pages. Um, so, um, yes, I do have a background in ballet, and this is partly the memory some of the memory part of the book. I studied as a child and I absolutely, I loved it. I had no talent, but what I did have was kind of a 100% retention for what I experienced there. Not only the warm up, um, the physical warm ups at the bar, but I uh, went to a professional school, which meant that I could watch the professionals rehearsing, which left an indelible mark and was so important. And then I just, want to say something to your point about choreographing the ballets. Um, this is a piece of writer craft. I don't know if there are writers out there, but this was really interesting to me. I realized while I was choreographing the ballets that it was really important that I get the costumes and the music and the scenery, you know, a, a, a visual view so a reader could fill out the view in her mind. But actually, I found that I only had to describe the first couple, the opening scene or the first couple of steps, because the wonderful thing about readers who are 50% of the writing reading equation is that the reader will fill out in their imagination what's happening. So it's not like there's a 20 page description of what's going on in the ballet. You just set the stage and readers fill in. And that's kind of a cool thing that I realized as I was going along. A question in the chat. How did you decide that John would be a physician and how did he become one? So John's a composite. Um, he is from my imagination, but he's also a composite of some um, Holocaust survivors that I knew personally. Um, and so I had it early on that he should be a psychiatrist, partly because it does present a dilemma for him that he has to heal himself before he can heal anybody else. But he actually goes to medical school for a very specific reason. When John comes to this country, he's adopted by a couple called Barney and Selma Katz, and their only child was his son who was killed in the Battle of Sicily. So when they take him in, they tell him, he's, he's a teenager, they tell him that they're going to stake him to medical school because that's what they would have done for their own son. So he doesn't have a choice about that. It's a tremendous gift, but also he doesn't have a choice. And he's at dinner with, um, I think it's a Seder where his, the man sitting next to him who's a neighbor says, 
you should become a head shrinker because you've got enough surus to sink a ship basically and you need you need to this would be a good field for you to go into so in fact his becoming a psychiatrist within the um binding of the book is completely random another question in the chat uh, was someone speaking uh yes this is eric parker martha i had a question for you hi eric thank you for coming. <laughs> absolutely um i am uh utterly gobsmacked by the thoroughness of your research and how exacting you are as you go about pulling together all this historical detail. Um, and so it, it makes me wonder, uh, did you have uh, some sort of plot uh, device where perhaps you had a timeline and you had decided, oh, by the fifth chapter, I've got to have introduced this character because it coincides with that historical event? Or was, was your process your writing process as exacting as your research um the answer the short answer is no i my writing process is very very chaotic i'm a lawyer and i spent 40 years working in the regular world and in the regular world i'm super organized and i'm an outliner in fiction land i'm a disaster so it's basically completely trial and error and I definitely do keep a chronology because you can, a novel is really long, as you know, and you can get yourself super confused. So I, I do always write with a chronology because otherwise I can't remember how old people are. So I had one draft of something where the grand, the people who were children were actually, had to be grandchildren because 40 years had passed and stuff like that. So I definitely keep a chronology. Um, uh, in terms of the research, um, the chronology moved around a little bit and that's another thing that as a historical novel writer i've had to like make a few things up not so much in this book but in my next book um in in subsequent books i've had to change dates around a little bit um so, and in terms of research some of this i feel like i was doing my whole life i've been reading about the holocaust my whole life and in my generation is a generation who knew holocaust survivors and we were related to them. So some of that is real life experience. And then there's always- books. Thank you so much for that. I, I cannot wait to read your book. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, two questions in the chat. The first was, any interest in writing and performing your fictional ballets? I would be thrilled. I haven't figured out, Not I wouldn't be the performer. I'm definitely not a ballerina, but I would be thrilled if a ballet company were interested in this. I'm not really sure how to make that happen. <laughs> but I mean, it, it would be fun. I think they're, they're suggestive enough that I think somebody could do something with them. Uh, the next question was, once your book was acquired by a publish publishing house, did the publishing house fact check your work or help with research in any way? No, not for this book. This book, um, I was incredibly lucky. It won the Publisher's Prize, which came with an honorarium on publication. They did a very light edit. Um, the one thing that I ran into, which took some time to figure out, um, I had used a fair amount of song lyrics because songs are a great way to set, to ground a book in history. I mean, I had a big scene with a Connie Stevens song and I knew when it had been recorded and all that stuff. And it's incredibly difficult for book publishers to get permissions on songs. So I had to rewrite a couple of things to avoid that problem. You can't use song lyrics. It kind of made me nuts actually. But so that, that was a problem that I thought, um, that I had to deal with because there were legal problems with that. But um, 
Other than that, no, they they did a very light. Is your next book also Jewish in theme? No, it is not. I'm happy to spend one second on it. It's set in Philadelphia, my hometown. Hi, Judy. Wow, I haven't seen you in a long time. Um, thank you for coming on. Um, it's set in my hometown of Philadelphia, and it's um, deeply about the classical music scene in Philadelphia, which is big and robust and um, the story is basically a story of um, two sets of characters, a husband and wife, two piano team that are world famous as classical performers. And the wife dies on page one. So the husband has this dilemma of his own grief, which is very personal, but also public because he no longer has a career. And the son, who is um, a professional violinist, is feeling something very different at his mother's graveside, which is a sense of abandonment and the fact that he didn't really know his mother. So this book is about grief, but it's really a love story. It's the son's quest to find love in his own life, which he has not been able to do because of his fraught relationship with his mother. I had another question for Martha, or it's more more of a comment. I, I'm so sick of reading uh, a young person, a, a new writer's coming of age story. So it is really a pleasure to read a debut novel that is a mature contemplation of life, just for what it's worth. Well, I thank you very much, but I do have to say it took me a long time to get a novel published. So um, I had written about four novels before this one, which is is my debut novel. So I guess age is on my side. So thank you very much. Here was a question that, sorry, I missed in the chat. Did you visit the Holocaust sites in the book and how difficult or emotional if you did? No, I have never been um, to any, um, a concentration camp. I've been to museums and I've been to Holocaust memorials in several different places, but no, I have never done that. I have one. Um, thank you so much for for such a, an amazing class, Martha. What are your thoughts on the rise of romanticization in fictional books that romanticize um, characters with Nazis? Um, I'm interested to to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I find it really horrifying. Um, I'm not in favor of banning books, and I'm not in favor of censoring. But I think the idea of um, in any way romanticizing or belittling what happened is is terrible. And I, one memory I have that was so disturbing, um, we went to visit the Jewish quarter and this, the remaining um, ancient synagogue in Prague and the, the street on the way in is filled with souvenir sellers that are selling little wood figures of men in Talit and, and little Jewish people. And I was like, it's horrifying to be to have this made into a commercial enterprise so i don't have a good answer for that because and one of the things to your point eddie it's like um you hear it in the publishing field that the holocaust sells and i'm it's it's like i can't even get the words out because it makes me feel so sick i think it's awful and i don't know what the answer is except don't buy those books <laughs> really or don't read them Thank you. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi. I enjoyed your book very much. I found it very compelling. Thank you. And so thank you for being here. Um, can you yeah. tell me, do you have a routine for writing? I know many authors say I just park myself at my desk for four hours a day, even if I only write two sentences. Yes, I will say I had a much better routine before I went on book tour. <laughs> so um, I try to write every day. I'm much more productive in the morning. 
I don't believe in inspiration. And that's probably the biggest thing I would say. I don't believe in waiting for the muse to arrive because that muse doesn't show up very often and possibly never. So I'm a big person like tush in a chair and just sit in front of your computer screen. So I don't think, oh, I have no good ideas today. I'm not going to write. I, I, I definitely believe in, in a regular practice. I, my practice has been pretty upended in a very lovely way by being on book tour and doing talks because I don't have as much control over my schedule as I once had. But I do try to, um, you know, make sure I'm writing every day. And I guess the two other things I would say, one is writing begets writing. I'm also a book critic. And I believe that writing book reviews does keep your chops up. I mean, I don't think I have to be writing fiction every day. And the other thing that I think is really important for avoiding writer's block is if you're one sentence ahead, if you know one more sentence that you want to write before you turn off your computer or you put your pen away, then you're probably okay because one sentence usually begets other sentences. Well, yes. Thank you so much for being here, Martha. It was a pleasure to hear more about your book and to watch your presentation. I just want to let everyone know about our next class, which will be on September 21st. That will be The Gifts of Imperfection, Brene Brown through um, a Kabbalah lens on September 21st at 1 p.m. Pacific with uh, Melanie Gruenwald. So we hope you can all join us for that as well. And want to wish, wish everyone a Shana Tova, a Happy New Year. And thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. And Shana Tova to everybody. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.